Good morning. Um, it's good to see all of you this morning, and for those who are joining on live stream, um, well, I would say it's good for you to see me, but I don't know if that's true. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know me, who I may not have met uh, before, uh, my name is Jacob Reed, and I hope to continue the trend from the past uh, couple weeks of presenting a short but impressive word. Um, although my, my prayer and desire is that you would be impressed by Christ uh, and his word. Everything that we've read, everything that we've sung, everything we've said uh, since we started this morning has been pointing us towards him. Um, and as we're returning to First Timothy, I hope that that continues to be true. Two weeks ago, we had our centennial service, 100 years of this church existing. Um, and Kyle brought us a reminder and encouragement that while we've done well, this church has done great ministry, um, we still have much to do. Christ has not returned. The kingdom is still being built, and we are a part of that. Likewise, last week, we heard a reminder from our new pastor uh, that we have to stay focused on that ministry, uh, continuously singing the praises of Christ and not neglecting him. Today, the passage that we have uh, very much follows the same line of thought. It's almost as if God's word has a common message for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, as a way of reminder, I want us to look first, though, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Paul tells us, and I just want to remind you, the, the purpose of this letter. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Our primary goal in setting this letter uh, has been to heed the encouragements and commands that Paul is writing to Timothy, to know how we should behave, how as uh, the church we need to be preparing our hearts for the next hundred years in our church's history. Um, in other words, we've been reminding ourselves of the mindset and behavior we need to have. Uh, as we're nearing the end of the letter, we're, we're going to begin hearing Paul's final encouragements. Uh, the five verses we have this morning, I don't think that they're that intellectually challenging. What Paul has to say is really quite simple. But I would argue that what he's calling us to do, the way that he's calling us to, uh, to, to walk with Christ, is perhaps some of the most challenging words of this letter. One thing that you may not know about me is that I'm an English teacher. I teach high school English. And in my 11th grade class, one of the novels we read is The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, as a side note on that, uh, I think that this is a novel that every American should read at least once in their life. And if you're from Tuscaloosa, you especially should, because his wife, Zelda Fitzgerald, is from here or was from here. Uh, but just a few weeks ago, we finished reading The Great Gatsby in my class. And as I was reading it this year, I was struck by how relevant it remains, even a century after it was written. The novel focuses on the goals and dreams of the, of the character that it's named after, uh, Jay Gatsby. It portrays to us a very young and highly successful man who has anything and everything that he wants, except for, as tends to be the case, the woman of his dreams. In pursuit of a feeling from his past, in pursuit of trying to gather that woman's attention back to himself, 
he structured his entire life around the goal of being with her, of feeling a certain feeling, of rebuilding a certain moment. Unfortunately for him, sorry that I'm spoiling a 100-year-old novel here, unfortunately for him, he fails. His ambition was unfounded, or rather it was built on the wrong thing. And so when I've read The Great Gatsby or watched the movie, the movie's also a great representation of the story, I come away with this question. What am I working towards? What are the goals and dreams that I'm pursuing? Is my life on a path that will lead to my downfall? And that is the question that I want us to answer this morning for ourselves and for our church. What have we oriented our lives around as individuals? What have we oriented the church around? Is it Christ or is it something else? And that brings us to our text for this morning, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, which I'll read for you. Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray before we look at this a little more closely. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that as we've sung praises to you, we've read your word, we're working to encourage each other to follow you, to really see that you are the name above all names. You are worthy of all of our praise. We ask that you would draw us closer to you. We would be listening to your spirit speaking through these words um, and that we would increase in our love for you. Amen. The first phrase that I want us to focus on is where Paul says, O man of God. Um, I think it is helpful to remember that Paul is writing specifically and directly to Timothy. Uh, so his wording and his tone in the letter is different than what we might see in most of Paul's other letters where he's writing to churches. So it might be tempting to think, I'm not Timothy, I'm not Timothy therefore maybe Paul's not writing to me. While it's true that this letter was intended for a single person, we know that Paul meant it for a whole church, right? Chapter six, verse two, he's, uh, Paul writes, teach and urge these things, meaning make, it, make them known to the church, right? Additionally, God has been faithful to preserve this letter over the past almost 2,000 years so that it makes its way to us. So if we are to similarly, similarly know how we ought to behave in the household of God, looking back a few verses earlier, Paul is also clearly speaking directly to us. So the question is, what does it mean to be a man or woman of God? There are three texts that I wanna draw your attention to that will be on the screen uh, to provide clarity on this because we, ha we have to start there, right? What does it mean to be of God? I just wanna say that these are not exhaustive. There are other texts that we could look at. These are just three that speak very personally and directly into my heart. 
The first one is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Uh, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This passage has quickly become one of my favorites because of how well Peter describes what it means to be a Christian. First of all, we've been granted righteousness by God's power. And we have to recognize that it comes from, from God. That's what Paul, that's what Peter means. I make that mistake all the time. So what Peter means when he says we have gained all things pertaining to life and godliness. But look at how those things are given to us. It's through the knowledge of Christ and of his calling. It's not by anything we've done, which we often forget. It's not what we've done. That's what the false teachers in 1 Timothy would have us to think. It's by our actions. But as Paul writes in Ephesians, it's given to us by God's grace through our faith in him. Through that, he has given us his promises. That's what Peter says. But what are the promises? Is it not eternal life with Christ? Is it not being made into a new person, one who's continuously being conformed into the image of Christ? Look what else there is to gain in verse four, that we become partakers of his divine nature. I love the wording on this, right? And this is the irony of the serpent's lie in the garden. God wants us to be like him. The problem is when we try to take his nature for ourselves and by our own means, right? Yet through Christ, we escape the corruption that's in the world. Through escaping the corruption in the world is how we accomplish uh, a command that we see in the second text I wanna draw your attention to. One that I'm sure is very close to all of your hearts. Leviticus chapter 19, verse two. Uh, it says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. In second Peter, we saw that in Christ, we, we become partakers of his divine nature. But what is the result of taking on his divine nature? It's that we become holy as he's holy. The significance of this cannot be overstated. We become something other than this world when we take on Christ. We're set apart from it. Thinking about the literal definition of the word holy though, to be set apart, I think can be kind of confusing. So we should be thankful that in books like Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Revelation, we have visions of the throne room of God that really doesn't make it any more clear, right? Every time we get a glimpse of God's throne room, he is surrounded by creatures praising him, saying, you are worthy, you are holy, you are separate. The magnificence of his glory cannot even be described in terms that make sense. My mind always goes back to Revelation where, where John describes that surrounding the throne, room, the throne of God was a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Every time I read that, I think, thank you, John, that's so helpful. Like, I understand what you're saying, <laughs> right? Before Isaiah, the famous, uh, famous passage in Isaiah, before he could even speak, he had to be purified, right? Our words cannot be spoken before God as we are. And so what we see when we look in at, at these visions of the throne room is, yes, one, we can't understand it. We can't understand it. 
We're given a picture of a God who's so perfect that by definition, he cannot be a part of the world. Like the world cannot be a part of him. That's what it means when it says to be holy. To pursue this image of perfection that only Christ can get us there. Only Christ can, can make us like him by becoming partakers of his divine nature. The third text that came to my mind is one that is very familiar to you, which is Galatians chapter five, verses 22 through 24. Paul writes, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, very similar to what we saw in Colossians three earlier. Against such things, there's no law. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I won't belabor the point here because I think that these characteristics are well known to you. Um, The point, however, is made clear in verse 24. If we belong to Christ, we've died to our own passions and our own desires. In doing so, we take on the characteristics of Christ according to our new identity in him, right? We must understand that living a moral life uh, or doing good to others does not make us righteous. Rather, being made righteous by God Receiving his identity is what produces those good works, right? Everything's in response to our new identity in him. So just to summarize what, I, what I've said, when, when, when Paul speaks to Timothy and says, oh man of God, what does he mean? He means someone who has a knowledge of what Christ has done for us, someone who's become a partaker of the divine nature through the gift that we, we receive from Christ, Someone who's of God is someone who pursues holiness and the example we have of God and of Christ. And we take on his characteristics. We become like him, like a parent is like a child. In my mind right now, I'm just thinking about when I was growing up, how, how we know that children are like their parents, right? The horror of once you're my age, once you're an adult, the horror is how much you realize you're like your parents, right? And my dad, if he's listening, is probably laughing right now because when I was growing up, he kept saying, oh, you're gonna grow up and realize that you're just like me and then you'll realize that I was always right. <laughs> right, and like we, we all have difficulty coming to grips with that because we like to think that we're our own person, which we are our own people. Um, but we don't have to be horrified of it in this case, right? Because the image of our father is perfection. We don't have to be upset or annoyed that he's always right because that's who he is. That's who he is. Beyond what we can see from other texts in the Bible, there are some additional conclusions that we should draw from the whole letter of 1 Timothy itself. First of all, someone who is of God stands in contrast to those who Paul has labeled as false teachers. We're gonna talk about that more here in just a moment, but this means that we shouldn't seek to deceive other people. We should not distort the gospel. We should not do anything else that's contrary to what we've already, what has already been said. We shouldn't be motivated by personal gain. Rather, we're motivated by Christ and the identity that we've received from him. Which takes us to the second half of the first sentence. A pet peeve of mine is always beginning in the middle of a sentence, and here we are. Um, Paul says, flee these things. Flee these things. What are the things that we're supposed to flee? If we look back through the letter, we see a lot of examples that Paul's already given to us. Look at chapter one, verses three and four. 
Paul writes, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to, what? Teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We should obviously not be teaching a doctrine different from what we see from Christ. The message of his death and resurrection to bring all things back to himself and to make all things new. We should not devote ourselves to speculation or extraneous tangents of the gospel or biblical truth. Instead, we must hold on to his word as it is. We must hold on to the truth of these books. And we must stay grounded in it. We must stay grounded in it. Look at chapter four, verses one through five. It says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Our goal here is not to deceive others into thinking that we have to add on additional uh, rules to the commands of Christ. The commands of Christ are simple. Believe in him and follow him. That's it. Everything else falls into place naturally based on our identity with him, if we are truly pursuing him. We should not be elevating certain moral behavior uh, to be equal to the saving word of God. Right? Right? Even if we think that certain behaviors are good, there's a lot of good ways to behave, a lot of bad ways to behave. It doesn't take that long to figure that out, right? Those moral behaviors are not equal to the righteousness of Christ, and they don't produce it, right? The Israelites in the Old Testament, the Pharisees in the New Testament are both examples of this. They sought to live moral laws according to the rules, and Jesus said, you've missed the whole point. Look at verse seven of chapter four. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. We should not be spreading what Paul refers to. I love the wording here. He says they're irreverent and silly. Like they're distortions of the gospel to the extent we don't even know what it is anymore. Right? We should not be promoting anything other than the truth of the gospel. Chapter six, verse five. Um, Really looking at the, the second, the very, very, very end here, looking at the motivation of those who speak uh, the false doctrine. It says that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. One of the hallmarks of a false teacher is that, that that's their motivation. They think that godliness, that righteousness is a means of personal gain. Can we just be honest and recognize that there are better ways to have the things of this world than by trying to appear righteous, than by deceiving people into thinking this is how you pursue Christ by giving me lots of stuff, right? (laughs) Why would we pursue an appearance of godliness rather than godliness itself? The idea is self-contradictory. What benefit is there? Yet we all know that we're tempted to think that way, that oh, we, 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 need to be, we need to have this appearance. We need to look like we've got it together. We all know that we don't. So why would we try to pursue uh, personal gain through the gospel? Lastly, look at verses nine and 10 of chapter six. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
and the many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is one of the most, verse 10 is one of the most often misquoted parts of the New Testament. We should not be motivated by a love of money. Why? Because it produces, helps us, or causes us to pursue what he calls many senseless and harmful desires. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with being successful. But when that's our goal, what does it do? It destroys us rather than allowing us to be generous with what God has given to us. It's worth noting that all of these behaviors that Paul's talked about, and we can go, we could talk all day about the, the, the fruit of the world, right? All of these are rooted in a lack of understanding of the gospel that we claim to believe. As an alternative, Paul has laid out specific virtues in the final part of verse 11. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You'll notice immediately that these qualities overlap with the fruit of the Spirit, overlap with what we saw in Colossians 3. That should reinforce that these qualities are what we should be pursuing. If the false teachers, in other words, those who are not men of God, are characterized by their attachment to this world, we should be characterized by our attachment to Christ. If we are attached to him, we gain his righteousness and godliness. By clinging to him and following him, our faith and love in him increase as we are continually made into his image. As we are made into his image, the roots of our faith continue to grow deep, leading to steadfastness. We can't be shaken from our faith, and we take on his gentleness. We do not need to look out for our own interests. We do not need to take advantage of others. We do not need to distort God's truth to attain personal gain. All we do is pursue him. All we do is pursue him. So looking at verse 11, we can clearly see who we are in Christ, what we're supposed to flee and what we're supposed to run towards. In verse 12, Paul commands us to fight the good fight. This is one of those verses uh, that uh, maybe is easy for us to misunderstand. Uh, When we hear the words fight the good fight, immediately we might be feeling a call to action We might feel some emotion rising within ourselves that we've got work to do, that we have something to strive for. The question is, what is it that we would be striving for? Paul tells us, he says, we're fighting for the faith. This means we're fighting for the gospel in its most pure and true form. In other words, the message that Christ proclaimed. Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That's the message we're fighting for. As we're going to see, fighting for the faith is not just fighting for clarity and communication. It's also fighting for our own belief in the gospel message as well as fighting to make sure that others can hear it and understand it themselves. This is why this letter, the New Testament, the Bible as a whole are filled with warnings against false teachers and false prophets. I wanna take some time really to think about this first part of verse 12. A temptation that we all have, I have it, I'm assuming that you have it. We misidentify what we're fighting for, both as a church, perhaps, certainly as individuals. What are some of those things that we might misidentify as the goal? Here are some of my thoughts. 
This is by no means an exhaustive list, but these are some things that we will be tempted to pursue. Our own preferences in the way that church should be done. Our comfort. America was founded on finding comfort. Just remember that. Having a senior pastor and potentially looking to him as the one who will make things right for our church. Having an increase in our attendance and membership. Having a healthy and balanced church budget. Having members who are upstanding and godly or have the appearance of it. Having a growing successful children's ministry. Having a strong presence in and respect from our community. Question is, are any of these things inherently bad? No, they're not. Maybe we we might be conditioned to think that pursuing comfort is bad, but we also have to recognize we have a building. it, It is a comfort and a privilege to have a building to meet in that most Christians in this world don't. They don't have that. Should we feel bad for that? No, we should be thankful for what God has given to us, right? But when we replace the gospel with anything that I've said or anything that you can add to that list in your own minds, in your own hearts, whenever we put anything, whatever, in place of the gospel, we are no longer fighting a good fight, right? We're no longer fighting a good fight. If we take the faith and replace it with anything, 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 We've begun to teach a false doctrine ourselves. And we've become the thing that Paul is warning us against in this letter. This is where the true difficulty of this text is revealed, in my opinion. We all love it when we're encouraged to follow Christ as the one who freely gives us eternal life. That's that's an easy word to hear. It is a different feeling entirely to be told to sacrifice yourself in in order to pursue him. We must remember who we are in him. We are partakers of the divine image. We have been given everything by him, by his promises. Thinking back to 2 Peter chapter one, we have everything we need to overcome the corruption of the world and our sinful desires. We cannot replace Christ with anything else. Continuing on in verse 12, Paul tells us to take hold of the eternal life that we've been called to Christ. This is the key. This is the key. The first thing that comes into my mind when I read this verse is uh, the scene in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob is wrestling with the angel of God. Over the past several years, and it's not just because I share the same name with him, (laughs) I've fallen more and more in love with this scene. I really want you to, to think about this moment. This is Genesis chapter 32, verse 26. It says, then he, then he, being the angel, said, said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let, go, let you go unless you bless me. I will not let go unless you bless me. That moment is when Jacob became a new person. It was after that encounter that God changed his name to Israel and he became the father of the nation of God's chosen people. The question is, do we hold on to Christ, onto the eternal life with the same conviction? I'm asking myself, do we hold on to Christ with the same conviction? Do we hold on to the eternal life of Christ, again, as individuals, as a church? Do we cling to him until the day that we receive his blessing in full when, when we're with Christ? 
where he is seated at the right hand of the Father? That's a hard question. It's a hard question. There's also a lot of encouragement to have here, though, because I feel like the word that I'm saying is a little uh, overbearing. That's not my intention. There's encouragement to be had here, right? Not only are we charged to take hold of Christ, uh, but we are in the presence of many witnesses. If you look around this room, there's a, there are people here, right? It's not just, uh, it's not just you as an individual. Um, we're, we're not living our Christian lives in isolation. We're here to encourage each other to pursue Christ. We are all committed to the same calling. We were talking about this in my Sunday school class this morning, that at this point, regardless of what's happened in this church over the past year, there are people here who are committed to holding on to Christ. And that's what we're all about. Similarly, we're charged in the presence of God, which perhaps can create some fear. But if we look at what Paul says uh, in verse 13, God who gives life to all things, right? God is the enabler of the call and the command that we're given. It's not just up to us to will ourselves into it. God is giving us the strength by spirit. We can't ignore him working within us. There's the ever-present question of how long? How long? How long do we hold on to the eternal life of Christ? How long do we flee the temptations of the world? How long do we pursue him and seek to be made into the image of Christ? How long do we keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach? The answer is a very simple yes. There's not a point when we can say we're finished. Not until either Christ appears or calls us home. In Galatians chapter six, verse nine, Paul writes to us, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And we have no cause to give up. We have no cause to give up. Will we be tired? Absolutely. I think the past year is an example of how easy it is to get tired. But we have to hold on to Christ. We have to. How do we not give up? How do we avoid growing weary? It is by beholding the light of Christ. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I want to return to my opening illustration of The Great Gatsby. In that novel, there was a literal light that Gatsby beheld across the bay. It represented his hopes and dreams for his life. He had a goal to build and structure his life around a particular feeling represented by that light. But as the novel shows us, he was wrong to do so. What do we behold? Let's look at the end of our text for today, starting in the middle of verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. The light that we're to behold is the light of Christ. He's the one who shapes our futures. It's not us. He's the one who has a perfect ending in store for us. We are incapable of even imagining what a perfect ending would look like. Gatsby thought that he did, and he was wrong. I want you to see how Christ is described in these verses. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He has complete control over everything. Complete control. He's immortal. He will never die like we will. Uh, he dwells in unapproachable 
light, unapproachable light. His glory and magnificence is too great for us to handle. We can't even, we can't even approach him like Isaiah could not. He rules forever. Why would we let anything eclipse Christ and cast a lesser light for us to pursue? But we do this all the time. We become complacent as we wait and we grow confused as to what motivates us in ministry and our daily pursuits. So thinking as a church, what are the things that might motivate us? Is it the excitement of a new pastor? Hopes for being successful as a church? No person can guarantee that our church will be successful. No human can. Even if our church fails to exist for another hundred years, God's church will not fail. Uh, think about Second uh, Timothy chapter two, verse nine, where Paul's writing from prison, but he says, him being bound in chains, but he says, but the word of God is not bound, right? Even if we don't behold Christ, other people will and will continue Christ's church when we're long gone. Even if we were to have the perfect pastor, which doesn't exist apart from Christ, let's be clear, that person cannot guarantee that we'll see another century of service come from this building, come from this church. We all know why. No one is sovereign, only Christ is. No one is immortal, only Christ is immortal. No one dwells in unapproachable light, only Christ does. So we have to behold him. That's the question that we have to ask and answer for ourselves. What do we behold? What are you beholding? What is our church beholding? Are we fighting the good fight of the faith? or are we fighting for our own ambitions or our own preferences? Are we willing to sacrifice the desires of the world that we have, that we might cling to the eternal life of Christ? If you're here or listening on live stream and you're not beholding Christ above what this world has to offer, there's no reason to delay. As Paul writes, he ignores what's behind him and presses on towards the call of Christ. Right? Do we believe today? Not, did we have members that believed 100 years ago? Do we have members that believe today? As a church, we have to run and cling to him. That's, that's what we're called to do. Let's pray as um, Jennifer comes back up to lead us in song. Father, thank you for this word that you have in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We ask that we would behold only you above everything else. We ask that we would not be like the false teachers that Paul is writing against. We would not become the very thing that we're called to avoid and called to speak against, but that we would hold on to your truth. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter three, we ask that if in any way we fail to hold on to you, that your spirit would reveal that to us and that we would cling to you with all conviction, with all love, that we would encourage one another as your children to pursue you. And so we just ask we, that we would not become blinded, we would not become distracted by the things of this world. We ask that we would not grow weary in proclaiming your message, the message of your son who gives life to all things. 
but that we would have uh, a right understanding, that your spirit would be working within all of us, uh, and that we would live as you would have us live. And we just ask all of this in your name this morning. Amen.